Well, this evening, our text is from Lord's Day 37. Lord's Day 37 deals with the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. But before we read the truth summarized in Lord's Day 37, I'd like to read with you two passages. First from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Just a few verses in each. In Deuteronomy 6, now this of course comes very shortly after the Ten Commandments. And Moses really is giving specific commands that apply some of those commandments here. And starting in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 6, he says, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him in Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Amen. Looking then to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair, white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 37 asks us two questions. First of all, but may we swear an oath in God's name if we do it reverently? And the answer is yes. When the government demands it or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote truth and trustworthiness for God's glory and for our neighbor's good, such oaths are approved in God's word. And were rightly used in the old and new, by Old and New Testament believers. May we swear by saints or other creatures? No. A legitimate oath means calling upon God as the one who knows my heart to witness to my truthfulness and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. Amen. Beloved saints saved through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we ever wonder whether a confession written 450 years ago could still be relevant today, Lord's Day 37 is one of many that show us that it is, in fact, eminently relevant to the life we live in our modern age. Swearing oaths, that sounds so formal, but in our culture, speaking in ways that work out to be oaths and vows utterly common, about as common as promises in election season and oftentimes just about as trustworthy. 
Children speak them on the playground. Cross my heart and hope to die. That was the, the one when I was a kid. Or on my grandmother's grave, I'm telling you the truth. Older children remove some of the silliness of it, but their oaths are just as common. One will say, no, I swear it. Another one will say, well, well I'm not going to lie. As though he has to assure you of that. Adults will be more formal, but oftentimes more common in the way that they call upon God or upon their own name or upon their parents or the grave of a loved one in attesting to the truth of what they've spoken. Oaths in various forms are all around us. They permeate our culture so much so that we don't even recognize that they're there. But meanwhile, people lie without reserve. They see absolutely no harm in fudging their taxes or lying to the officer who pulls them over or making up tales about how they spent the evening. Our politicians do it on such a massive scale that we've come to expect it. A senator or a representative says that this is the absolute worst proposal that could ever be brought forth. It means the downfall of our nation and our culture. But meanwhile, he's on tape two, three, four years before proposing exactly the same thing. Another politician lies to his wife and to his aides and to the authorities themselves so that he can cover up a long-running affair which is just one of a string of affairs. With role models like these, it's absolutely no wonder that our nation's children feel absolutely no compunction about lying. And the more we lie, the more we feel compelled to lie. And not only to lie, but to assure people that we're telling the truth. Why do we have to assure people, well, I'm not lying, or no, seriously, honestly, why do we have to assure them so much that we're telling the truth? It's because our conscience afflicts us because of all the lies that we tell. But for us, it should be different. It must be different. You see, folks outside of the church, folks outside of Christ, they lie because they're following their father who is the father of lies. They're following the devil. They're so wrapped up in the one who is, whose foundation is a foundation of lies that we should be shocked that they ever tell the truth. We, however, have been set free from our slavery to Satan. In Christ, we have died to the lies of this world and to the power of the lie. And so Lord's Day 37 shows us that God's grateful people, God's people who are grateful for being delivered from their slavery by Christ, we now have the freedom to embrace the truth. And make no mistake, that is an immense gift. It's a gift that frees us inside and out. So that's what we're considering this evening, how God's grateful people embrace the Lord's love of truth. But in saying that, we need to recognize something. When we say that God's people embrace the Lord's love of truth, we need to recognize that there are a variety of understandings of what that means among Christians. Our first point that we're going to consider is how we're called to reverently use God's name to promote the truth. But there are Christians out there, particularly among the Anabaptist uh, persuasion, who believe that Christians should never swear an oath. And they use the passage we just read here, where Jesus says, I say to you, do not swear at all. 
But let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And they point out that James 5 verse 12 says the same thing. Do not swear. And if the Bible says it twice in the New Testament, well then we, it's settled. We should never swear an oath. We should never take a vow. Problem is, the Bible doesn't just say, do not swear. And kids, you understand when we're talking about swearing, we're not talking about using profane language. We're talking about attesting to our truthfulness formally, using God's name. And if the Bible only said, don't do that, we wouldn't have a problem. But the problem is that the other passage we just heard from says that we should swear oaths in God's name. So we have to wrestle with that a bit. How do we reconcile these two passages that seem to say exactly the opposite? Well, when we do that, I propose to you that we'll find that we are called to use God's name to promote the truth, but we're to do it very carefully and very reverently. To understand that, we need to understand how God directs our ethics, our our morality. The Bible basically guides us in or directs us in four different ways. Now, this doesn't have to do specifically with the third commandment. This has to do with all the commandments. The Bible directs us, teaches us in four different ways how ethically we are to behave. It serves, first of all, as a guide. Kids, this is important for us to understand. Parts of the Bible teach us about our morality, about how we should live as a guide. Those are the positive commandments. Do this. The Bible directs us to do certain things. It's good to forgive. It's good to show mercy. Okay, those are the positive commands. The Bible guides us. It also guards us. Those are the negative commands. Don't do that. Don't covet. Don't hate. Don't steal. Right? Don't say bad things about your neighbors when they're not present before you. Okay? So it guides us positively. It guards us negatively. Those are the easy ones. But it also sets a moral example or a moral compass for us. This is the, the passages that kind of teach us not specifically what path to walk, but what direction we should go. For example, the Bible says nowhere that Joe should marry Sally, right? But it does tell Joe that as a Christian, he should marry a godly woman. He shouldn't be unequally yoked. He should look for someone who, like him, has faith in Christ, She should desire to submit to Christ by submitting to her husband. And he should desire to love her in a way that reflects the love of the Lord for his church. So scripture tells Joe not specifically whom to marry, but what kind of woman to marry. That's its compass function. So guide, guard, compass, and also example. The Bible gives us examples in the lives of the saints of what we should do and what we should not do. It shows us... uh, Examples we should follow, like Joshua leading Israel or Paul's devotion to the church. But also examples we should avoid, like that of Judas or Ananias or King Saul. So those four ways help us to understand the ethics that God wants us to follow. Guide, guard, compass, example. So what does the Bible teach us with regard to swearing oaths in these four ways? As a guide, the Bible tells us that we should take oaths in God's name. We just heard that from Deuteronomy 6, didn't we? You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him, and you shall take oaths in His name. We find exactly the same counsel in Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. And we find similar examples throughout, especially the Old Testament. So, 
we have to ask, would God command his people to take oaths in his name if oaths were never to be used? Or would he instruct his people to do that and then later give diametrically opposed counsel? We have to say no to that. Because our God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He told his people back then to take oaths in his name. That continues today. However, he provides a guard against the misuse of that. In Deuteronomy 23, for example, we're told this. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you promised with your mouth. Now a vow is a particular kind of oath, a particular kind of swearing. It's an oath, well back then it was an oath to provide some animal or gift or profit to the Lord. And the Lord will regard it as sin if we vow to give Him something, but then we don't do it. But at the same time, he says, you're under no requirement to make that vow. So if you don't fully intend to keep your word, don't make the vow. Right? There's no sin in not promising. But if you promise, you have to keep the promise. That's an important principle for us. Kids, pay attention to that. You don't have to promise someone to do something. But if you promise whether formally with an oath or just informally by speaking, if you promise, you have to keep your word. Even if later on you find out it's going to be a lot harder or a lot more costly to keep your word than you thought it was. Right? Psalm 15 says that the godly man, the, the one who pleases God, is the one who swears to his hurt but keeps it, but does it. Okay? So we need to beware of speaking falsely. That fits nicely with the compass for our behavior which Scripture gives us. Time and again, the Bible calls us to be honest, to promote the truth. We heard that in Matthew 5, didn't we? Let your yes be yes and your no, no. In other words, if you say something, really mean it. Don't speak lightly. Likewise, Ephesians 4 instructs us in verse 15 that we should speak the truth in love. And in verse 25 it says, Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So that's the compass that the Bible gives us, that we should love and delight in and live for truth, trustworthiness, honesty, right? Say what you mean and mean what you say. That's the direction in which we should always walk. And that's what we see when we look at the examples in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, we find Paul swearing an oath before the Lord because the church doubted him when he said that he didn't visit them because he was seeking their good. He declined to visit them as he had hoped to do because he didn't want to deepen the division between them. But he knew that they didn't believe that. And so he takes an oath before God saying this is the truth. And he's expecting that they'll receive that as the truth because they know that God is the judge of all that we say. Likewise, when Jesus was standing before the high priest and he questioned him whether the, he was the Son of God, he was put under oath before he answered. And then, having been put under oath, he answered, knowing that God the Father would attest to his truthfulness. And God himself speaks vows. We see that in quite a few passages of Scripture, including 
the one that we just read from Deuteronomy 6. Where he says, You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. God took an oath to give them that land. And we see God taking other oaths in passages like Psalm 110, Isaiah 45, Genesis 22. At crucial times in the life of God's people, the Lord Himself took an oath. Even though no one should ever doubt the trustworthiness of God. Now put all of that together. And it's clear that God does permit us to take oaths in His name. He commands it. He governs the practice. He demonstrates it Himself. But we must never do so lightly. Our catechism, I think, strikes a godly balance when it speaks of how we should use oaths. Two reasons are given for why we should take oaths. God's glory and our neighbor's good. Or actually, our neighbor's good is secondary. God's glory and promoting truth and trustworthiness. When you go into court, you are made to put your right hand in the air. And in most courts, they still require you put your left hand on the Bible and swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. That's an oath. In a somewhat less ceremonial, but no less important way, when you submit your taxes in the next month or two, you'll be required to sign attesting formally that everything under the penalty of law and perjury, perjury is the crime of telling a lie to the government, under the penalty of perjury, that everything you have written there is to the fullest of your knowledge the truth. Likewise, when you go to submit any kind of paperwork to the government, you're called on to attest formally, to swear, to take an oath that what you're saying is the truth. And the catechism says that's okay. In fact, that's a good thing because when you do so, you honor God. When you say, I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, you're acknowledging what about God? You're acknowledging that He's the one who knows your heart and knows whether you're telling the truth. He's the one who, even though the person in front of you might not know it, might not see it, might not stick around to investigate, God will know whether you do what you said you will do. Or, on the other hand, whether you're telling a lie. And not only will God see it, not only will God know it, but He will ultimately hold you accountable for that lie. How can that confession of God not honor Him? In fact, I, I wish that the courts of our land and the governments of our land would reinstitute some of the vows that they used toward the beginning of the founding of this nation, which were far more rich and full. I remember hearing uh, one of those vows in the courthouses of Allegheny County, Pennsylvania. That's where Pittsburgh is located. When I was working as a newspaper reporter, I remember sitting there slack-jawed the first time I sat in on a court case in Allegheny County because the man went up there who was to testify and he put his hand on the Bible and the clerk asked him to repeat after him 
You promise to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. As you testify before the Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts and the knower of all secrets, who will hold you accountable on the great day of His coming. Now that's a vow. And that cannot fail to honor God. And when we do that, when we do that, we uphold trustworthiness. Your neighbor might not believe that you're telling the truth. He might think that you're trying to pull one over on him. But if he knows you're a Christian, that you're committed to God and that you desire to honor Him, and you offer to take an oath before God, calling on Him as the one who knows the truth, He's going to be far more apt to believe you, or at the very least to believe that if you're telling a lie, you'll have to answer for that one day. And so you uphold trustworthiness and honesty. So we must desire when we take an oath that God would be glorified. That truth and trustworthiness might be upheld for the good of our neighbor and for the honor of God. But when we do so, reverently using God's name to promote the truth, brothers and sisters, we need to do so with a realistic expectation that God upon whom we call will punish those who lie in His name. And that's our second point. But, you know, that's something that's wrapped up in the third commandment, isn't it? What's the third commandment, kids? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the last time we talked about this, what vain means? It means as something that's light, something that is worthless. Something that really doesn't have any value or weight. Right? If we do that with God's name, which represents His very being, and that's what we do when we take an oath that we don't mean, when we swear to something that's not true. We take God's name in vain, and God will not hold Him guiltless who takes His name in vain. He will not hold Him guiltless. That means He won't just overlook it. (coughs) He'll hold you accountable for that. But most of the oaths, most of the swearing that we hear in our culture doesn't take that seriously, does it? Many times people swear on someone other than God. On the name of a relative or just vaguely, oh, I swear it. But there is no one, our catechism rightly says, there is no one who is worthy of that kind of honor because we're calling on the one in whom we take the name of the oath or take the oath as one who knows the truth and is able to hold us accountable for it and only God is able to do that and others do so lightly they take oaths about silly things they'll swear that they didn't eat the leftovers in the fridge who cares they'll take an oath that they'll they'll do the laundry later That's not worthy of taking the name of the Lord. A legitimate oath. A legitimate oath means calling on the true God and Him alone. Doing so with reverence, recognizing the significance of what you're doing. And doing so in the fear of the Lord. Understanding that He is the all-knowing God who will hold accountable all of those who lie in His name. 
And so our second point is when we take a vow, when we use God's name to uphold the truth, we do so realistically expecting God's wrath to punish liars. This is a big part of what Jesus was teaching in our reading from Matthew 5. Notice in that passage how he starts by saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old. It was said. Now we find what was said there reflected, not verbatim, in the Old Testament. But when he says, You have heard that it was said, he's calling upon their love of the oral law. See, the Jews at that age had developed a twofold law theory. There's the written law, which is what we find in the books of Moses. But then there was also, they believed, an oral law, which was never committed to paper, but later, but, but through the years was committed to the next generation by spoken teaching. And that oral law was expected to be that by which they interpreted the written law. Later on, the Jewish scholars wrote that down, about a hundred years, between a hundred and two hundred years after Jesus taught. And that oral law oftentimes was used to limit the way that God's law applied to His people's lives. And so, for instance, with oaths, that oral law, we know by what was written down later, that oral law would define degrees of sin with regard to telling lies. So breaking an oath made in the name of heaven was a little sin, but breaking an oath in the name of God was a big sin. Because God is bigger and more important and more weighty than just heaven, where He lives. It was easy, they believed, we see this reflected in this passage, it was easy, they believed, to be forgiven for breaking an oath or a vow taken in the name of Jerusalem, but not if it was taken in the name of the temple or the gold of the temple. That's the way the Jews had come to think. And it allowed them to take their oath in a way that sounded much more weighty than it was and thereby to bend the truth without harming their conscience. And Jesus points out that's dishonest. He says, no, God says... You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and take oaths in His name. So if it's not worthy of invoking the name of the Lord, if it's not something of which you are absolutely and 100% confident in, then don't say it. Don't take your vow. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything farther is from the evil one, says Jesus. But when we do call upon God, we do so with an understanding of who He is. The psalm that we sang... Psalm 139 emphasizes this about God. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There is nothing within us or about us that God does not know. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, there's nowhere we can go, nothing we can do, not even a thought that we can think that God doesn't fully know. We take our vows in the Lord. We need to recognize that. We cannot hide the truth from Him. We might be able to, we might be able to sway a whole courtroom 
We might be able to pull the wool over the, the eyes of the entire church, but God sees, God knows, and God is just. We heard last time, He hates those who do evil. He despises and, vo- and vows to destroy those who rebel against Him. And He is the one before whom all men will stand answering for all that they have done. And therefore, this God in whose name we take oaths, He is to be feared. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you, including the command to put off the lie, including the command to speak only the truth. Because Proverbs 12 warns, No grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked will be filled with evil. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are His delight. And in Proverbs 19, he says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies will perish. In other words, we need to fear this God in whose name we speak. Fear His judgment if you use His name to advance evil. Fear His wrath if you take His name up to promote what is a lie. And make it known to those with whom you speak that that's how you regard this God. You don't take your oath lightly. But you believe He's the one who knows the truth and will hold you accountable for it. And woe to me if I speak what is a lie. So we need to be serious when we take an oath. We're not, we're not told never to do it, but we need to be serious about it. Before you sign that tax return, that license application, that student loan form, before you raise your right hand in court, before you take His name on your lips in the presence of your neighbor, take a moment to remember who is this God whose name you take up. Because He knows it all, and He judges it all, and His wrath for those who use His name to advance a lie, His wrath is endless. So speak your oath or take that vow, but think carefully first. Remember intentionally that this is the God whom we serve. This is the God whose name we invoke. And freely confess that truth to all before whom you speak. And more than that, lest I scare you away from taking any oaths, remember that God calls us to live all our lives as those who are under oath. Young people, really, we should live all our lives in such a way that we should never have to say, I'm not going to lie to you. You should never have to say that. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Why? Because you have been freed from the power of the evil one who is the master of lies. You have been freed to tell the truth. And therefore, everything you say, you ought to say as though you were under oath. You ought to say as though you know that God is hearing, because He is. We should speak in such a way that if we're not absolutely certain of it, we don't say it. Remember what we heard in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we should grow up in all things unto Him who is the head, Christ. Putting away lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We should delight in the truth. And that's the last thing we want to notice here. 
with all of the warnings that are involved in Lord's Day 37, I don't want you to think that this is a curse. Please don't. God has freed us from the lies in which we were born. None of us, none of us as parents has taught our children, I hope, to lie. Right? I hope none of us have taught, their, taught our children that. And yet they do it, right? I'll never forget the first time I realized that one of my kids was blatantly lying to me. I was, I was dumbfounded. My little angel. But that's what comes natural to all of us, right? When I stopped and thought back, how many times I had lied to my parents many years ago. Uh, you know, that, that comes natural to the sinful heart. But Christ frees us. A lie is like a Chinese finger trap. Kids, do you know what that is? It's a fascinating little device. It's a metal tube. Big enough for you to fit your fingers into either end. But as soon as you do, a little metal spring-loaded jaw grabs hold of your finger. And the harder you pull to try to get your finger out of there, the harder that jaw clamps down. The only thing you can do is push your finger farther in. But if you do that, it just grabs more of your finger. And that's what a lie does. You tell a small lie because you think it'll be convenient or you think it'll get you out of a little trouble. But that small lie leads to a bigger lie to cover up the first lie. And that lie leads to another lie to cover up the first two. And pretty soon you're trying to remember what you told to whom so that you don't get confused and get caught. And pretty soon you've got this web of lies and you are trapped. In fact, it gets to the point where the people who have been lying, they start to believe the lies themselves. And they're lost in this labyrinth of falsehood. Brothers and sisters, that is slavery. And Jesus died to free us from that slavery. So as God's people, we should be grateful to embrace the Lord's love of the truth. Because in the truth there is freedom. In the truth there is joy. In the truth there is no fear. So let us indeed reverently use God's name to promote the truth. When the government demands it, when the good of our neighbor is at stake, that we might glorify God and promote truth and trustworthiness, let us use God's name to promote the truth. But let us do so reverently, soberly, realistically expecting God's wrath to punish liars. And let us delight. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us delight to live in the truth to which Christ has freed us. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You have given us the great gift of the truth and of living in the truth. And we pray that You would make it our delight to embrace that truth now and always. Lord, we can't do it on our own. But by Your Spirit, we can embrace the truth more and more and more. And so we ask that You would work in us and make that our delight. In Jesus' name, Amen.